Hello listeners, I wanted to tell you about something that I use and was part of its inception, Joyful.Gifts. Joyful.Gifts is a service that makes giving gifts very easy and joyful. You tell us who you want to give gifts to, set a budget, and then we select buy and ship the gift automatically to every occasion while you have peace of mind. Best of all, you actually save money since the software continuously mines the web for the best prices for you. If you want to give it a try, it's at joyful.gifts. No www, no.com. Just type joyful.gifts in your browser and you're set to go. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to the History of the Cards, episode 97, Epilogue. As I mentioned in our last episode, the goal here is to give a broad overview of the political and social world of the Mamluks. The Mamluks ruled Egypt with brief interruptions from 1250 AD all the way to 1805, a really, really long time. Obviously, I would not attempt to go through everything, and to keep things reasonable, even this overview would end at 1517 when the Ottomans conquered Egypt. Just now, the Ottomans' rule was more or less theoretical. The Mamluks still ran the show on the ground until Napoleon all but killed them and Muhammad Ali finished the job a few years after in 1805. Now, to understand the Mamluks, there is a passage from Ibn Khaldun, a 15th century philosopher that perfectly sums up the situation. I'm going to quote it in full, as it does a wonderful job of describing the relationship between ruler and people. Quote, When the opposite state was drowned in decadence and luxury, and donned the garments of calamity and impotence, and was overthrown by the heathen Mongols, who abolished the seat of the caliphate, and destroyed the splendor of the lands, and made unbelief prevail in place of belief, because the people of the face sunk in self-indulgence, preoccupied with pleasure, they had become deficient in energy and reluctant to rally in defense, and had stripped off the skin of courage and the emblem of manhood. Then it was God's benevolence that he rescued the face by reviving its dying breasts and restoring the unity of the Muslims in the Egyptian realms preserving the order and defending the walls of Islam. He did this by sending to the Muslims from this Turkish nation and from among its great and numerous tribes, rulers to defend them, completely loyal helpers, who were brought from the house of war to the house of Islam under the rule of slavery, which hides itself in a divine blessing. By means of slavery, they learn glory and blessing and are exposed to divine providence. Cured by slavery, they enter into the Muslim religion with the firm resolve of true believers, and yet with nomadic virtues, unsullied by debased nature, unadulterated with the filth of pleasure, and defiled by the ways of civilized living, and with their ardor unbroken by the profusion of luxury, the slave merchants bring them to Egypt in batches. 
and the government buyers have them displayed for inspection and bid for them, raising the price above their value. They do this not in order to subjugate them, but because it intensifies loyalty, increases power, and is conducive to produce zeal. They choose from each group according to what they observe of the characteristics of the race and the tribes. Then they place them in government barracks, where they give them good and fair treatment, educate them, have them learn the Quran, and kept at their religious studies until they have a firm grasp of this. Then they train them in archery and fencing, in horsemanship, in hippodromes, in thrusting with the lance and striking with the sword, until their arms grow strong and their skills become firmly rooted. As you can see from Ibn Khaldun's words, the Mamluk legitimacy and acceptance by the Muslims, at least the educated elite, rested on really one pillar, their ability to maintain the status quo of Islam and defending it from outsiders in the absence of the caliphate. Unlike all other Islamic dynasties, the Mamluks relied not on lineage to the Prophet or any other religious structure to prop them up. No, from the beginning to the very end, it was about one thing and one thing alone. Who was the strongest? They were always seen as outsiders, divine helpers, as Ibn Khaldun puts it. Nomads meant to carry the sword, so Ibn Khaldun and his colleagues can pursue other more meaningful things. They were not supposed to make laws, proclaim religious beliefs, build a just society. You know, what a medieval ruler was supposed to do. No, that was the job of the imams, the ulama, the religious scholars. The Mamluk job was to live and die as warriors, defending the lands of Islam. Now, in their vulnerable position as outsiders, a Mamluk state had very little chance of surviving beyond a few years, if it was not for the legend of Angelut, a battle portrayed to this day as a showdown between the evil pagan Mongols against the last standing stronghold of Islam, a showdown where Islam was saved from total destruction by the courage and the strength of the Mamluks, a battle that ended up cementing their legacy and their role in the Islamic world. And so, we must talk about the Mongols. Around the year 1206, a Mongol warlord named Timujin, aka Genghis Khan, managed to unite the ever-warring Mongol tribes and built a state convinced that it had a heavenly decree to conquer the entire world. For the next 50 years, first under Genghis Khan himself and then after his death in 1227 under his sons, the Mongols exploded across the face of the earth. By 1250, when we last stopped, their empire stretched from China to Eastern Europe and from Siberia to Anatolia, crushing everything that stood in its path. Six years later, in 1256, their assault on the Middle East started, led by a certain Hilgu, the brother of the Khan Mongai, Timujin, grandson. In two years, Baghdad fell and was raised to the ground, 
with 30,000 Muslims slaughtered in the wake of the conquest. A year later, the Mongolian horde crossed the Euphrates and entered Syria, where, for the last decade, the land was devastated by a succession of the Khwarezmians, Mamluks and Ayyubid Amir fighting, and even Mamluk factional fighting. Aleppo was captured pretty quickly, with the aid of the Crusader Kingdom of Antioch, and was also raised to the ground. The rest of Syria, truly terrified of a fate similar to Baghdad and Aleppo, surrendered. Damascus, where Salah ad-Din's body was laid, ended up captured, without a fight. This sort of carnage and humiliation was exactly what the illegitimate Mamluks warlords needed to establish themselves. The warlords running Egypt, Kudus, took the opportunity and eliminated a young Ayyubid prince who was kept around as a puppet. Similarly, another warlord in Syria, Bibers, took the opportunity and negotiated a working arrangement with Kudus, where both looked forward to the day they get to eliminate the other, but they saw a benefit in using the fear of the Mongols in their advantage. And truth be told, they had plenty of reasons to think that they can stop the horde. First, Baghdad and Aleppo had a lot of history, but at this point, they really had no armies. Not anything like the Mamluks had anyway. Second, and this is much more important, the Khan died in 1260, and his brother took the vast majority of the army with him back to Mongolia to figure out the succession. And so, they were not facing the same army that steamrolled everyone in a way. No, rather, they were only facing a tiny fraction of that army. But to their credit, the Mamluks knew war and constantly used every trick in the book to gain an advantage on their enemies. So they didn't wait in Egypt until the succession of the Khan is figured out. No, Kudus and Pipers immediately set out to Palestine to defeat the Mongols while they were distracted. And so, the legend of Angelwood took place, where the Mamluks stopped the tide of the Mongols and saved Islam from total destruction. And I say legend because on the ground, the quote-unquote Mongolian army that was defeated was really a token force, and its entire left wing was actually made from Muslim allies, not Mongols themselves. Nonetheless, like all great moments of history, all that matters is what was remembered, not what had actually happened. And after massive the battle, Kodos and Vipers quickly took control of Damascus and Aleppo, before deciding to call it a day and return back to Egypt. On their way back, Bibers asked Kudus to take a slave girl. When Kudus agreed, Bibers approached the Sultan to kiss his hands. Aruz decided to immobilize him, while another Mamluk stabs him from the back. And so, ten years after the death of Nigmuddin, the last Sultan of Egypt and Syria, we get a new one. Bibers, one that ruled for 17 years, where he built a lot of the foundational structure of the Mamluk state. Was the Mongols never really coming back in force, at least in a united fashion, mostly busy with their own infighting. The foundational structure that Bibers built were 
a honed military machine with up to 40,000 soldiers ready at all times, a one-generation nobility where elite Mamluks rose by sheer will and ability, but their children ended up well off but never really part of that military elite. A state of constant warfare until Acre fell in 1291 and there were no longer European colonies of Palestine or Mongolian Persia. And if all else failed, then they fought against each other. And lastly, locally, a system of ektaat, literally barts, where lands were barsed out and given from the Sultan to other Mamluks, each having his own little fiefdoms to do with it as they wished, only answering to Cairo via supplying men for war and annual tribute, taxes if you want to call it that. But that's it, nothing more. When the Mamluk in charge of that fiefdom died, his land was confiscated and given to another, enforcing the one-generation nobility. In the civil realm, the Mamluk, as the Ayyubids and the Fatimids before them, employed Copts widely, but with a twist, where at some point they forced their employees to convert to Islam to ensure their loyalty. The sources speak of many Copts in the government in the age of the Mamluks, but almost all of them to the last man were converts, no longer Christian. Similarly, when it came to religious policy, the Mamluks as outsiders felt that it was necessary for them to display at least the appearance of religious zeal. And so, Sunni orthodoxy reigned supreme. The prototypical imam of this period was a certain Ibn Tamaimah, perhaps the most intolerant and extreme religious scholar of Islam. These factors meant that the age of the Mamluks really decimated the Christian population in Egypt. It was a dark and a long tunnel. Right away, as soon as it started with Akta in 1250 AD, his wazir, a Copt, was pressured to convert to Islam, and then, after his conversion, proceeded to try and get his favorite monk ordained patriarch. None of the bishops participated, but he pushed the ordination anyway with no bishops. One of Aulad al-Assal al-Amgad organized his colleagues and picked another monk, a scholar named Gubriel. After a tense standoff, the convert wazir faction won, and his favorite monk was ordained as Athanasius III. When Athanasius died 11 years later, the same story happened again. Al-Amgad and his colleagues picked Gubriel again and ordained him with the participation of the bishops, but the sultan's wazir, one Bahaldin ibn Hanna, probably a convert from the name, also hard to say definitively, was happy to accept a bribe, removing Gubriel and putting another candidate on the patriarchal throne, John VII. Five years later, as Piper's reigned, the patriarchy was asked to contribute the massive sum of 50,000 dinars to support his constant war effort. When John said that he cannot do it, John was removed and Gubriel was brought back. But he too said that he cannot come up with that massive sum. So, after a brief reign, he was to boast and John was brought back, serving as the patriarch until 1293. And that's how it went. 
From 1250 to 1517, there was a total of 18 patriarchs who left very little in terms of materials to work with. We know so that in this period, the hand of the Mamluks was consistently heavy, removing and bringing whom they wished. The patriarch was simply a cash transfer point between the Christians and the government. If he failed at this job, another one can be brought easily. And if truth be told, the Mamluk age brought other challenges than government interventions in picking the patriarch. In 1301, the government decreed that all churches be closed. In 1321, a massive countrywide riot against Christians erupted with open lynching and widespread church destruction. We know that at least 60 churches were destroyed by eyewitness accounts. In 1347, the bubonic plague arrived in Egypt, perhaps killing as much as one-third of the total population, and it ended up coming back 20 times in a 200-year span of our overview. In 1354, another anti-Christian riot took place, a moment where a lot of the scholars point to as where the Coptic population of Egypt dipped below 10%, with the plague followed up with massive conversion waves. As the history of the patriarchs puts it, quote, Many afflictions came upon the Christians. Some were killed, and some were burned. They nailed some, and braided them on camels. They forced them to wear blue turbans. A French noble visited Cairo in 1395, and noted that the patriarch at the time, a certain Matthew, was, quote, a very good and charitable person, not only as it is reputed, but as he shows in definite manner by feeding a thousand or more poor people every day. Now, this very same Matthew just happened to end up being jailed three different times by the Mamluks, probably for feeding the poor instead of giving them the money. During his time, in an obscure incidence, Christians were rounded up and executed by the government. Al-Makrizi, a Muslim historian, briefly mentions the incidents, saying, quote, A party of men and women came to Cairo and mentioned that they had apostatized from Islam, that before becoming Muslims they had been Christians, and that by their apostasy they desired to be brought near to Christ through the shedding of their blood. They were offered Islam several times, but they did not accept it, and said, we have come to be purified and brought near the Lord Christ. Matthew's biography, the only substantial biography of this period, contains 49 of their names, for the world to remember them. A fitting end for our podcast, to not forget their sacrifice. Here are the names. The monk Ya'ub Abu Muqtayef, Three nuns, his spiritual daughters. Riz Allah. Ilya from the people of Dronka. Sidrak and Fadl from the monastery of St. Anthony. Dawood al-Banna. Baraka. Jerjus. Arsenius al-Habashi. The priest Kuzman al-Kharas. Another Gerges. The priest Abu Farak. The priest Rufail. 
the priest Johanna from the people of Tuch, the Latin priest from Alexandria, not given a name, Hibat al-Katib, the four Latin priests from Jerusalem, the monk Musa and his six companions, Hadid from Giza, who refused to convert as his grandfather had done, Nasr and Abu Ishaq, two teenagers from Masr, Ya'ub and Yohanna from Sinbad, Bulis from Bani Khazb, Faraj and Mikhail from Tanan, the priest Ya'ub who converted but returned the next day and was martyred, the monks Mansur and Dawood who died after they refused to convert, Ibrahim as Suryani, a monk who converted and came back, Mikhail, Isa the Armenian, Abul Faraj al Banna from Max, Gabriel from Hu, Ibrahim from Shopra, Ya'ub from Aminuat, Gergis ibn Rahib, Thank you for listening. Farewell for the last time. My existence is a triumph.